We began this series on Sunday the 2nd of May 1937, standing in the garden of a French chateau. Society photographer Cecil Beaton is photographing Wallace Simpson, not long before her marriage to Edward, ex-King of England. What everyone notices is that splashed down Simpson's skirt, there's a large pink silk lobster. It's a sunny photograph, but in the background are some very dark shadows. Wallace Simpson, as well as the chateau's owner, and Salvador Dali, who designed the lobster she's wearing, and Cecil Beaton, the photographer, are all known to have had pro-Nazi or at least anti-Semitic views. And the same goes for Edward, who until December 1936 had been King of England. These people were typical of an influential section of wealthy British, not to mention American, French and Spanish society. Now, there were those at the time who alleged that this was the real reason that less than five months before, Edward had been removed from the British throne. What we established last time, that there's no evidence that that's true. But the question lingers on. Had Edward abdicated his throne willingly, or had he been pushed? Hello. Good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas. I'm John Rosebank. And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Cafe, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us. So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens. Actually, instead of History Cafe, this is History Kitchen Table, since we're in the middle of the coronavirus lockdown. But other than that, everything's just about the same. In December 1936, Edward VIII had gone on BBC Radio and announced that he'd abdicated the throne, simply and willingly, so that he could marry Wallace Simpson, the woman he loved. Incidentally, technically he's the only British monarch ever to abdicate, although earlier monarchs of England and Scotland, like James II, had quit the job before him. James was pushed out by an invasion led by the man who'd become William III. Edward's explanation sounds reasonable enough. The Church of England wouldn't permit him to marry Wallace Simpson since she'd already been twice divorced and it didn't recognise the remarriage of divorcees. If he insisted on marrying her, it would throw the country into a constitutional crisis, pitching church against state. As we keep saying, at the History Café we have a complete horror of conspiracy theories. But we saw last time there's something not quite convincing about Edward's explanation. Traditionally, monarchs avoided constitutional crises by keeping their unsuitable lovers as mistresses and going through the motions of marrying someone acceptable. Edward VIII's grandfather, Edward VII, had done exactly that. The question is why no one persuaded Edward VIII to do the same. Historian Vernon Bogdanow, in a very judicious recent review of the abdication crisis, concluded that everyone behaved, most of the time at least, with complete honesty and integrity, and Edward abdicated because there was no other way to avoid a constitutional crisis. According to Bogdanow, the Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin was willing to let Edward go on having an affair until October 1936, when Mr and Mrs Simpson filed for a divorce, so opening the way, theoretically anyway, for Wallace Simpson to marry again. It subsequently transpired that Edward himself had pushed them into getting a divorce, though at the time he denied it. Anyway, King's secretary privately and urgently alerted the Prime Minister that Edward seemed completely unaware that attempting to marry a twice-divorced woman would turn into a constitutional crisis. 
So on 20th of October 1936, Baldwin for the first time raised the question with the king, having fortified himself first with a whisky and soda. It was 10 o'clock in the morning. The problem, as Bogdanor explains, was that in 1936, having an affair was morally pretty much acceptable, especially if you were rich. As Deborah Cadbury points out, Edward wasn't the only one of the princes to be having affairs. For Edward to marry an American, known for being hard-nosed and brazenly acquisitive, grated on many in the British establishment, but they would probably have got used to it in the end. But marrying a twice-divorced woman was beyond the pale, especially if you were proposing to become head of the Anglican Church, which at that time refused to allow divorcees to marry, and if you were hoping to be crowned in Westminster Abbey by the Archbishop of Canterbury. In fact, the Archbishop was saying that he frankly couldn't bring himself to do it. Having very gingerly tried that Tuesday morning after his whisky and soda to get Edward to talk about Wallace Simpson, the Prime Minister Baldwin finally blurted out, I don't believe you can go on like this and get away with it. Our people, he went on, meaning the British public, will not stand for this kind of thing. Edward looked pained and protested that he was doing his best as king. Baldwin assured him that he knew that to be true and appreciated that, quotes, the duties of royalty are not much to your liking. Well, the king looked plaintive. Quotes, I know there's nothing kingly about me. Baldwin then proposed that they put off the Simpsons' divorce and Edward replied that it was none of his business. <laughs> well, Baldwin could see he wasn't going to get any further. Prime Minister Baldwin now started to feel the pressure. The Labour opposition leader Clement Attlee visited him and said his party would not accept the King marrying Mrs Simpson. The civil service began preparing a submission to Edward formally telling him to end his affair altogether. The British cabinet made it clear that they wouldn't agree to the marriage. And now the clock started ticking because the editor of the Times told the King's private secretary that they would not or not for much longer observe the gentleman's agreement not to write about Edward's affair with Mrs Simpson. Very soon there would be a public scandal, they threatened. Well, once the king heard that, he summoned Baldwin to Buckingham Palace. Baldwin made it clear that there would be a full-blown constitutional crisis if Edward married Wallace Simpson. His government might even resign. Even if it did, of course, the Labour opposition would be no more sympathetic. Baldwin pointed out that the government had the right to approve or turn down the king's choice of wife, and the Archbishop of Canterbury had the right to refuse to crown a man he thought unsuitable to be king. Edward's reply, however, was unequivocal. Quote, I want you to be the first to know that I have made up my mind and nothing will alter it. I looked at it from all sides. I mean to abdicate and marry Mrs Simpson. Well, there was a possibility of a way out, a rather unsatisfactory compromise known as a morganatic marriage. Edward would marry Wallace Simpson, but she wouldn't become queen, and their children would not inherit the throne. In fact, it was first suggested to Wallace Simpson by Lord Rothermere, owner of the Daily Mail. The Prime Minister, however, correctly informed Edward that a morganatic marriage would require a change in the law, and that meant the agreement not only of the government, which was possible but unlikely, but also that of the British Empire, since Edward was king also of Australia, Canada, New Zealand, South Africa and the Irish Free State. And such approval, of course, as Baldwin knew full well, would not be forthcoming. The Irish said they couldn't care less. The New Zealanders were apparently too taken back to respond. The others firmly said no. Well, according to Vernon Bogdanar, that really was that. 
In all, Baldwin met the king eight times to talk about Wallace Simpson, but it was clear Edward had made up his mind. If he couldn't marry Wallace Simpson, he would abdicate. He was the first one who mentioned it, and once he'd stated his intention, nothing would apparently dissuade him. At one point he suggested making a broadcast to the nation to see if, quote, our people would in fact support him. Baldwin turned him down flat. That, he said, would do nothing but divide the nation, pitching the king against the government. The next day, which was the 5th of December 1936, Edward told Baldwin firmly that he was going to abdicate. Baldwin always claimed that the majority of the British public were against Edward marrying Wallace Simpson. Historians disagree, and there were no opinion polls to tell us. But at the very least, it's clear from the letters that the King and Baldwin both received that British public opinion was split down the middle. Edward finally got to make a radio broadcast at 1 minute past 10 o'clock in the evening on the 11th of December 1936. It was introduced by Sir John Reith himself, Director General and founder of the BBC, and it interrupted a repeat of a popular programme called Comic Opera. BBC engineers were told to broadcast the King's speech live, but not to record it. Well, they defied orders and recorded it anyway. In it, Edward informs a shocked nation that earlier that evening he abdicated the throne. You must believe me, Edward intones, when I tell you that I have found it impossible to carry the heavy burden of responsibility and to discharge my duties as king as I would wish to do without the help and support of the woman I love. And now, he ends, we all have a new king. I wish him and you, his people, happiness and prosperity with all my heart. So there, in the Baltimore version, you have it. In the face of wide-scale moral disapproval, Edward had taken the decision himself, not under any pressure from Baldwin, but out of love for the woman who would, five months later, be photographed by Cecil Beaton in a French garden in a lobster dress. It was the only way to avoid a constitutional crisis. But maybe that's not quite that. On the 5th of December 1936, King Edward VIII told the British Prime Minister Stanley Baldwin that he decided, once and for all, to abdicate. But was it entirely his decision? Letters made public in 2012 show that Cosmo Gordon Lang, who was the Archbishop of Canterbury, head of the Church of England, had been vigorously campaigning against the King behind the scenes. Over previous years, he'd been trying to get the royal family to make a more open alliance with his church. He said it was to restore the crown's tarnished popularity after years of economic depression. We might suspect it was also to restore the church's tarnished popularity after years of depression and the battering it had received during the First World War. Either way, Lang had probably been scandalised by Edward's racy lifestyle out of step with 1930s austerity. Also, by his almost complete neglect of the church. Lang noted in his diary that Edward, quotes knows little and I fear cares little about the church and its affairs. Perhaps what Lang and others also feared was that, as the Archbishop's private secretary wrote, actually rather admiringly in his diary, Edward was all out for youth and common people. As the Prince of Wales, he'd spent time touring working-class communities, appealing publicly for support for the unemployed. May well all have looked rather different to Lang. Whatever next? Not a Nazi king, but a communist one. So, Lang colluded with the editor of the Times, Geoffrey Dawson, to pressure the Prime Minister to make sure that Edward quit. 
what the Archbishop of Canterbury was up to was little short of blackmail. On 6th of December 1936, Lang wrote to the editor of the Times, Dawson, quotes, I've heard from a trustworthy source that His Majesty is mentally ill, that he'd, quotes, shown symptoms of persecution mania, and, quotes, had undergone treatment for alcoholism. Now, these were totally unsubstantiated allegations, but Lang informed Baldwin that the Times would print them if Edward did not resign. Well, it's damning stuff. But here's the thing. By the 6th of December, the date that Lang wrote to Dawson, his subterfuge was probably unnecessary. Edward had already told the Prime Minister in pretty flat terms that he was going. What it does tell us, however, is that there were those in influential positions who were actively working to get Edward off the throne. Well, it's an impression that goes stronger when you look at the legal situation. As the prominent divorce lawyer Stephen Cretney has pointed out, the Simpsons' divorce case could easily have been quashed on legal grounds, in which case there wouldn't have been any point at all in Edward abdicating, because he would never have been able to marry Wallace. You see, there were two problems with the Simpsons' case. First, for a successful divorce in 1936 or 1937, there had to be one innocent and one guilty party. But since Wallace Simpson couldn't possibly admit in court to her many well-attested affairs if she was hoping to become queen, it had to be Ernest Simpson who was the guilty party. So he booked a room for a night in the Hotel de Paris in Bray, Berkshire, an easy drive from London, with a woman who wrote her name in the hotel register as Buttercup Kennedy. She was probably, in fact, Mary Kirk, one of Wallace's school friends, and she and Ernest would eventually get married. Anyway, the Hotel de Paris was very used to this kind of thing and dutifully provided Ernest with a nice clear receipt giving all the details which he could absentmindedly leave where Wallace would find it so that he was the guilty party. But this was a risky strategy. Once the divorce case had been heard on the 27th of October 1936 in Ipswich, away from the London press, there was a period of six months in which anyone could raise any objections. And in fact, we now know that plenty of people did. Private citizens wrote in to say that it was obvious that Mrs Simpson was not an innocent party, including at least one legal clerk who obviously knew the details of the case and bluntly accused Mrs Simpson of having an affair with the king. Now, Edward always claimed that despite all the time he and Wallace had spent together, they didn't have sex before their marriage. Well, maybe they didn't. The palace servants might have told a different story. But there were also the other men, including Mr Trundle, the car dealer, with whom Wallace had had affairs, and plenty of people, including the Metropolitan Police in London, whom the palace had set on the trail, knew all about them. The evidence was there on file, ready to go. But as Cretney and various other historians have pointed out, unaccountably, inexplicably, the palace servants were never questioned. And that Metropolitan Police file of evidence about Wallace Simpson's affairs was never produced. Somehow, the legal machinery contrived it so that Wallace Simpson was allowed to get away with being the innocent party. And there was a second flaw in the case. You couldn't get a divorce in 1936 if the innocent and the guilty party conspired together to produce the evidence. Such a practice was known as collusion, and very bizarrely meant, in effect, that you couldn't get a divorce if both sides agreed they wanted one. Now, it was easy to prove that the Simpsons had colluded since she had in fact repaid his hotel expenses. But again, this fact was never brought out at the time. 
Now, as you know, at the History Cafe, we have a complete and utter horror of conspiracy theories. But you do have to conclude, at the very least, that Baldwin's government didn't take any of the relatively simple and perfectly legal steps which would have prevented the Simpsons' divorce from going ahead. In fact, it was the job of an official known as the King's Proctor to investigate divorces if anyone raised an objection. And it very much looks as though somebody behind the scenes took the King's Proctor aside in October or November 1936 and persuaded him not to make a proper investigation into the Simpsons' case. So he simply never called for any of the obviously available and damning evidence. So instead of mentioning any of this, Baldwin offered Edward the choice remaining king or marrying Wallace Simpson. What he could have done very feasibly after a brief conversation with the king's proctor was to make it plain to Edward that he realistically had no choice at all. He could have spelt out the truth of the Simpsons' divorce, that it was open to fatal legal objections and would, if the king's proctor did his job, almost inevitably fail. Baldwin could have explained, quite correctly, that there wasn't any point in abdicating because there would be no possibility of marrying Wallace. What Edward might have raged and sulked, he might, according to some historians, have threatened suicide. We shall never know, because Baldwin didn't try. Baldwin, in fact, did nothing except put on a pained look when the king told him he was thinking of abdicating. He graciously said it was the last thing he wanted, and later on he wished Edward happiness in his marriage, which Edward thought was nice of him. So you have to conclude that even if Baldwin didn't actively push Edward off the throne, he pretty clearly let him go without much of a fight. Now why on earth would that be? After all, no English king had abdicated since 1688, and that was James II, and he was pushed. So, why did Baldwin apparently not take any of the steps he could have taken to prevent the abdication of Edward VIII? If it wasn't because Edward was pro-Nazi, what was it? The clue may be in that first conversation the Prime Minister had with Edward. Baldwin had said, quotes, the duties of royalty are not much to your liking. And the king had agreed. I know there is nothing kingly about me. The truth was that Edward as king was a liability and he knew it. His father had known him all too well and he'd said, quotes, my eldest son will never succeed me, he will abdicate. After I'm dead, the boy will ruin himself within 12 months. And that was from a man who had known nothing about Edward's intention to marry Wallace Simpson. Once Edward came to the throne, highly confidential state papers were sent to him to read, as they would be, but he left them lying around for anyone, including Wallace Simpson, to look at. Instead of receiving important visitors with respect and seriousness like other monarchs, he got them to come in ill-assorted groups to save time, so that the representatives of the Quakers and the Bank of England found themselves trying to talk to him about completely different and difficult subjects at the same meeting. Edward offended everyone by failing to go to church. He only went twice in his entire reign. So much for the Archbishop of Canterbury's programme of binding the monarchy more closely to the church. July 1936, Edward threw a garden party. Well, that was a good idea. Better than the stuffy receptions monarchs usually hosted. Except that photographs show the monarch looking utterly bored and miserable. It also poured with rain. Edward then took a long and rather public holiday on board a yacht with Wallace Simpson and pictures were widely splashed over the foreign press. They had, physically, with scissors, to be cut out of every edition sold in Britain. <laughs> the government became so concerned about the relationship, and remember Wallace Simpson had made her way in London society by befriending American, and more to the point, German, diplomats, 
that they eventually began bugging the king's phone. In November 1936, Edward went on a widely publicised visit to South Wales, seeing for himself how badly hit the region had been by the Depression. At the historic Dowlais Ironworks, he proclaimed firmly, quote, These works brought all these people here. Something must be done to find them work. It was in keeping with views he'd often expressed before he came to the throne. But as king, it was a political statement he ought to have discussed first with the Prime Minister Baldwin and the government. This was, you remember, the man who'd asked Hitler's representative early in his reign, who is king here, Baldwin or I? Then why he couldn't say me? Actually, it should have been us, royal we. The truth was <laughs> that as Baldwin sat that day nursing his whiskey and soda and hesitantly trying to get the king to talk, both of them knew that Edward didn't want to be king and was very bad at the job. Perhaps you might guess that forming in the back of both of their minds was the notion that a love affair with this twice-divorced American might prove a relatively elegant way out of an extremely awkward situation. The most telling evidence only emerged on the night before the photograph was taken in the French chateau. Wallace Simpson sat up talking until dawn to Cecil Beaton, the photographer. Perhaps understanding that he was sympathetic in a number of ways to her social set and to her situation, she confided in him something very striking. She told Beaton that, quote, during the entire period of these discussions, meaning all the meetings about the abdication, Prime Minister Mr Baldwin held in his possession papers which had been signed by her to the effect that she was willing to stop divorce proceedings against her husband. So if that's true, Baldwin could have stopped Edward's marriage without even any of the dirty legal linen having to be made public. In fact, Wallace all but blamed Baldwin for the mess she now found herself in. Exiled to a luxurious French chateau, loaded with cash and jewels, but effectively forced to marry a man with whom, as Cecil Beaton recorded in his diary, it was obvious she was not in love. We now know, indeed, that throughout the abdication saga, Wallace Simpson kept on writing to Ernest, her soon-to-be ex-husband. She was appalled at the direction events were going, and more than half wished they could call a halt and get back together. It wouldn't have taken much to get them to call off the divorce until the affair with Edward was over. Wallace and Ernest had their own nickname for Edward, Peter Pan. Perfectly expressed the spoilt child he appeared to be, a man who refused to grow up. So it's difficult to avoid the conclusion that Baldwin had used Wallace Simpson to ease Edward out with as little constitutional strain as possible. They got shot of him not because of his silly pro-German views, which were commonplace among men of his social set, but because, as a monarch, he was a liability. Given half a chance to replace him with his sober brother Bertie, already married to the popular Elizabeth Bowes Lyon, with two small and charming daughters, the government of Stanley Baldwin seems to have had little hesitation. It was a quietly brilliant palace coup. On Tuesday the 1st of June 1937, Cecil Beaton's photographs were published in American Vogue. And two days later, Beaton took the train to Tours again and made his way south to the Chateau Condé. Along the road outside were a couple of dozen journalists, some with long lenses, some standing on top of their cars, peering over the wall. Beaton found Wallace looking strained. She was trying to create the semblance of a proper wedding, but hardly any of the invited guests had accepted. 
Charles Beddoe had hired an obscure vicar from Darlington in England who was willing, for a sizable sum of money, to break his church's rules and marry them once the French registrar had completed the civil ceremony. Well, the vicar wanted an altar, so they hunted around and found an old chest from the hall and put a tea cloth over it. After the ceremony, the guests were shunted off to a local restaurant and Cecil Beaton and a few of the new couple's closest associates had lunch at the chateau. To mark the occasion, at some point, Edward and Wallace carved their initials in the wood panelling of the library. Then they got on with taking wedding photographs. When he finally got back to Wiltshire, Cecil Beaton slumped into a chair at his friend the novelist Edith Olivia's house and told her that Wallace was, quotes, the hardest woman he ever saw. When war broke out on the 3rd of September 1939, Edward and Wallace, now the Duke and Duchess of Windsor, were actually back in France. Edward walked out to the pool, where Wallace and his friend and one-time equerry Fruity Metcalf were sunning themselves. And he said, I'm afraid this may open the way for world communism. Perhaps he was revealing what his naively pro-Nazi view had been all along. And then he dived into the water. By the time the Germans invaded France in 1940, Edward was in Paris. In theory, he was a senior serving officer in the British military mission. But his younger brother, now King George V, had made it extremely plain that Edward was not to be shown anything remotely secret. On 27th of May 1940, the British army was being desperately evacuated from Dunkirk. Edward's friend, Fruity Metcalf, phoned the Duke at his Paris home. Fruity discovered that the Duke had fled the city, taking his car and a mountain of carefully packed luggage. He'd left Fruity to fend for himself and to hunt around for some means to escape the Germans. Fruity was outraged. Utterly I despise him, he wrote to his wife. What was worst was that Windsor wasn't retreating with the rest of the army back to Britain. He and Wallace were heading to Biarritz. After the war, a mass of German documents were discovered by the Americans who began to publish them. For over a decade, the British tried to prevent the publication of one particular file. It was known, because of where it was discovered, as the Marburg file. Historian Paul Sweet, who was chief American editor of the documents, finally persuaded his bosses to publish the file anyway in the 1950s, and it suddenly became all too horribly apparent that, as the Germans had advanced into France, their intelligence had been receiving information that the Duke of Windsor was stirring up opposition to the British in Paris. Once the Windsors had fled south, the Germans launched Operation Vili, a very high-level attempt to persuade Windsor to go to a neutral country and to stand by to resume his throne if the Nazis could fix things with Britain, or conceivably even invade. It's something we talk about in our History Cafe series on the Battle of Britain. British intelligence found out about Operation Vili and Churchill took the decision to get the Windsors right out of Europe right away and he appointed Edward Governor of the Bahamas. But when the Windsors arrived in Lisbon on the 2nd of July 1940, they didn't take a ship for the Caribbean. Instead, they hung around at the home of a rich Portuguese banker. Churchill increasingly angrily demanded they set sail. Windsor replied by making a series of outrageous demands about wanting to take his personal servants with him, even though they were supposed to be in the British Army, fighting at that moment for Britain's survival. Well, after a month of this nonsense, Churchill threatened Windsor, whom he'd always defended, even at risk of his own reputation, but he threatened him with court-martial from the British forces if he didn't get on the boat and leave. Well, of course, it is possible that the Windsors had been waiting around for the Germans to make contact. At the very least, they were making themselves all too obviously and publicly available to them. 
It was later discovered that Germans had, in fact, somehow been given all the details, even the hotel room numbers, of their journey south. And also of the various anti-war and anti-Churchill remarks the Duke was loudly making in Lisbon. It was also discovered that he'd been suggesting, to anyone there to hear, that the Germans should bomb the Brits mercilessly until they sued for peace. Shocking. In the event, the Windsors were got on board and on the 1st of August sailed out of Lisbon and away to the west, just as SS Intelligence Chief Walter Schellenberg caught up with them. He'd arrived armed with 50 million Swiss francs and orders, if necessary, to kidnap the Duke. Well, the German even got a message aboard the ship and the Duke got one back in which he responded, quotes, kindly to the message of German interest and promised to be in touch. It was later discovered that he'd left his Portuguese host a code word promising to return to Europe if he ever received it. In August 1940, Edward, Duke of Windsor and ex-King of England was winkled out of Europe because there was mounting evidence that he was talking, or prepared to talk anyway, to the advancing Germans. Winston Churchill, British Prime Minister, made Windsor Governor of the Bahamas and got him away just in time, before the Germans actually caught up with him. The Windsors hated the Bahamas, where there was little in the way of smart society and they liked to slip across to Florida. But... In 1941, the American president authorised a full-blown secret FBI investigation and surveillance operation, and they discovered a series of possible links between the Windsors and known German sympathisers, and also persistent attempts by the Duke to stop the Americans joining the war against the Nazis. So, for Edward Windsor, it seems, nothing had changed. Despite the destruction Hitler had unleashed in Europe and around the world, Edward Windsor was still as childishly pro-Nazi as he'd ever been. And nothing much had changed with his wife, Wallace Simpson, the new Duchess of Windsor, either. As the decades of pampered idleness stretched on, she had a series of very public affairs, treating Edward with mounting and obvious disdain. It became clear that he'd escaped a job he couldn't stand for a wife who couldn't stand him. Let's return finally to that photograph with the lobster dress where we began. The next day was Monday the 3rd of May 1937. Wallace's divorce finally came through, no evidence mysteriously having been found of any guilt on her part or of any collusion between her and her ex-husband. That morning Cecil Beaton drove away from Chateau Condé with his photographs to develop. Had he left late in the morning and taken his time to the channel, he could have looked up and seen a massive and familiar shape in the evening sky, making its stately way west, from Frankfurt toward the Atlantic. The German airship the Hindenburg was four times the length of a modern jumbo jet and many times as massive. With its sister ship, it was the largest object ever to fly, and in fact still ever to have flown. Its construction had been delayed by the Great Depression, but it was finally completed with finance from the Nazi Party, which saw it as a piece of unmissable propaganda. After its launch in March 1936, it had become a famous spectacle, with two massive Nazi flags painted on its tail fins. It dropped Nazi leaflets and small swastikas on parachutes and broadcast Nazi propaganda from large loudspeakers. In the summer, it flew at 750 feet over the Berlin Olympic Games. Well, 
3rd of May 1937 was its first flight of the new season, and almost the anniversary of its first ever flight to the USA. This time, two-thirds of the 97 people it was carrying were technicians and officers, training to fly its sister ship, soon to be launched. But the return trip, scheduled to leave New York on the 6th of May, was already fully booked. Many of the passengers were intending to travel in style to attend the coronation of Edward's brother, George V, on the 12th of May. They would, of course, never make the journey. At 7.25 in the evening on the 6th of May, just as the Hindenburg was coming into land at New York's Lakehurst airfield, it burst into flames. 35 of those on board and one man on the ground were killed. It was the end of airship navigation. Close business contacts between the USA and Germany would continue, but the swastika, at least, would no longer fly over New York. Well, the loss of the Hindenburg makes Wallace Simpson and her silk lobster dress seem rather ridiculous but the two had been connected in ways that few at the time could possibly have known. For more on this story and others at our History Cafe, go to historycafe.org. There you'll find information about us and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have. (laughs) 